This morning's scripture is found in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things. Your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there is your heart as well. Thank you, Steve. So I'll never forget, I was about, I don't remember, 10, 11 years old, and my, my family took a trip to Vegas. And I remember sitting in a restaurant, we'd ordered lunch, and of course, you know, most of the restaurants in Vegas are also casinos, slot machines kind of everywhere, and, and we ordered, we're waiting for our food, and, and my mom's like, you know what, let's just, let's go see, let's, what, let's take a dollar, and we'll go, we'll go use one of these slot machines, you know, just to kind of kill the time, and just kind of see what happens. So, so the four of us, my brother, my father, my mother, and I, we, we gather, crowd around this, this slot machine, right? And uh, my, my mom, you know, I remember something like this. She, she puts a quarter in, coin or whatever it is, and pulls the lever, and, you know, it's like banana truck chicken or whatever it is, you know, whatever. They are. Nothing happens, right? So she puts in another quarter, and 
banana, pear, apple. I don't know, something that actually might make you money. I don't know. But it didn't make money, whatever it was. Finally, she, put, she puts a third one in, and there's like two cherries and something, and, and a couple coins spit out. And we're like, oh. So she takes, the, takes those coins and puts it in and pulls the lever, and nothing happens. Takes another coin, puts it in there, pulls the lever, and a couple more coins come out. And the four of us were like, we're, we're, we're giddy, you know, gathered around this slot machine, and, and she puts a, a few more in, nothing, and, and then she puts one, and she pulls the lever. Ding, 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 ding. It just starts spitting money out, right? And, and our family, all four of us, were like, ah! Woo! Woo! Right? And, and in the end, it was like $7, you know? That's all it was. We're like, Whoa. and 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 I noticed all of the people in the restaurant, in the casino, they're all just looking at us. Like something seriously wrong with us. So <clears throat> after that we go back, our food comes, we sit down, we're, we're having lunch. And you always hear the little little dings in the background. There's always noise going on in the background. But sure enough, all of a sudden I hear ding 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 ding. And I and I look over and I see this woman sitting on a stool, stool, she's got a, a, a bucket there. It's just ding, 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 and it's coming, and it's coming, and it's coming, and it just keeps 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 coming, way beyond what we had. It just keeps coming, it just keeps coming, it just keeps coming, and, and what I was, what I remember about that wasn't, wasn't how much money was coming out, but I remember the look on her face. No expression at all. Today we're continuing in our series called Thirsty, a series which we're going through during this season of Lent, and the central theme of this series is that as water is to our bodies, God is to our souls. As water is to our bodies, God is to our souls, that your body cannot survive without water. Uh, You can only go a few days, right? You can go a few days and you're in trouble. Virtually everything else in life, you can go days, weeks, months, years, but water, you can only go a few days before you start experiencing all kinds of health problems and ultimately it will kill you. You cannot live without water. Your body cannot survive without it. And in the same sense, what we find as we, as we move through the Scriptures is this theme that as water is to our bodies, so God is to our souls. And the problem is, the problem is, is that we look to things other than God to quench that spiritual thirst. We have this deep spiritual thirst. The problem is that we look to things other than God to try to quench that thirst like somebody who they're really thirsty and instead of getting a glass of water, they pour themselves a shot of whiskey. Now, whiskey may be great, may, may be fun, may, may taste great, maybe do wonderful things, I don't know, but, but, but whiskey is not going to quench your thirst. In fact, whiskey actually makes you more thirsty. Alcohol actually makes you more dehydrated. There are all kinds of drinks that we drink that don't actually quench 
our thirst and we know, okay, I need to drink some water. I need to drink some water. I've got to stop drinking this stuff, whatever it is. It's not quenching my thirst. I need to drink water. And, and but the problem is people who don't do that, if you don't go to water, you just keep drinking whatever else. It causes all kinds of health problems. And the same thing is true with our souls. That we drink from spiritual wells that cannot quench our thirst. God is the only one that can. So we're looking at what I'm calling counterfeit wells. Wells that we think will quench our thirst but won't. And, and these wells are not bad things. They're, they're, usually they're God-given things. Things that God designs for us to have. Relationships. We looked at that a couple of, of weeks ago. Relationships are good things. But relationships are good things that when they become your ultimate thing, when your human relationships become that ultimate thing to you, it becomes a dangerous thing and ultimately becomes destructive. When, when a person's spouse becomes like their God, what they need more than anything, when a person's children become that which is the most important thing to them, Strangely enough, when your children become that level of ultimacy, you become a worse parent, not a better parent. You become a better parent when your hope is in God, when you're looking to that which can actually quench your thirst. There are, are so many different things that we turn to. I, just, I was just listening to a podcast yesterday, and I'm excited to get the book that just came out by this individual. The, the book title kind of confirmed that I'm, I'm on the right track here with this whole series. The book is called seculosity. And his central thesis is that everybody is religious. Everybody is. It's just what are you religious about? Some of us are religious about our pursuit of God. We are religious. With fervor, we pursue God. Others are religious in our pursuit of success. Others of us are religious in our pursuit of eating healthy. He's got a, a chapter on food that we're sort of developing there are pockets of a religious culture with regards to food, and there's every bit as much legalism with regards to this culture of food as you would ever have in any religious cult. You see, we're, we're religious in what, it just depends on what it is that we're going to pursue with great fervor, and what we're looking at over the course of this series is what are some of these big ones, some of the big Idols is really what we're talking about, false gods that we look to to satisfy our deepest spiritual thirst. Sports. Sports can become this. I mean, I just added this to my outline um, because I read this morning that uh, in Lubbock, Texas, they had to use tear gas. The cops had to use tear gas to calm down the crowd after Texas Tech beat Michigan State last night in the final four. They're going to the championship game, and apparently they, the, the crowds that had gathered to watch the game, they walked out in the streets of Lubbock, and they were flipping cars. When was the last time we walked out of church and we flipped cars? Right? I mean, we're so fired up. I would, I would love that. We got so fired up about God. We walked out. We're flipping cars. Okay, maybe not that, but you get the idea here, the sort of fervor with which people pursue things. Today, we're looking at one of the big ones, money. For many people, particularly in the Western culture and in America in particular, money is 
one of the biggest counterfeit wells, one of those things with which we look to to satisfy our deepest spiritual thirst. And the Bible, interestingly enough, gives really strong warnings about the danger of money. And we see this in this passage here, uh, verse 15, Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Watch out. This idea, you've got to, you don't know when money is going to get you. You don't know when it's going to sneak up on you and take your life. You've got to watch out for it. And you find this very strong language. In, in, another, in another passage, Jesus just kind of makes it very simple. He says, look, you, you cannot serve both God and money. You, you've got to choose. You've got to make this. What, what is it that you are, are after? What is, your, what is your desire? Is it, is it God or is it money? He just makes it very very stark contrast between the two. These strong warnings. And these warnings are, you don't find the same strength of warning with many of the other idols. It seems like money seems to have the, the strongest warnings. And why would this be? Why would he have such a strong attitude towards money and the dangers of money? And I think the reason why, why this is, is because money is not just an idol. Money is an idol factory. You see, the reality is, is that actually most people are not pursuing money. They're pursuing the things that money gets. And so many of the idols, so many of the counterfeit wells that we are after are closely related to money, right? You're a Texas Tech fan. You want to go to the championship game. How are you going to get there? Money. For many of us, it's material things is really what this message is about. It's material things that we're out. It's different for each and every one of us, but those material things, how do we get those material things, whether it's a new car or a new house or season tickets to a sporting event, whatever, all of these things, which in and of themselves are not bad, but when they become ultimate, when they become the thing which we are after and cannot let go of, that's when it becomes destructive. And money is, of course, what makes all of that possible, whatever it is. What we need to look at today is this issue of money. Money reveals, you see, how we spend our money, let me put it that way, reveals in many respects what it is that our heart is after. Right, this is what emerges in verse, uh, verse 34, the end of this passage. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? When we talk about, you know, what God do I worship, I don't know that we can do that based on our beliefs. We need to do that based on our checkbook. Right? Now, don't think of it in terms of, what, well, you know, what God do I worship, and we just use our beliefs, our doctrine. I think a better test of what our God really is then what we say we believe is how we spend our money because that dictates where our heart is. That shows what our, what our God is. This is one of the reasons why tithing, giving, uh, giving to God is so important. And I, I talk about it in this context because I know I'm like the last person that can say this. You're not going to believe me when I say this because I'm the pastor. 
But, but really, when I'm in the right frame of mind, and I'm often not because I'm a sinner, and I'm like, gosh, I hope they give because we need to pay the bills, right? But when I'm in the right frame of mind, what I realize is that when you give, it's not for the church. You're not giving because the church needs money. You're not giving because God needs the money. Right? I love it. In, in, in Psalm, Psalm 50, God says something like, he's like, you know, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't need you to feed me. I don't need you to give me anything, God says. I have everything. I own all the cattle on the hill, right? Everything is mine. Like, we don't give to God because somehow God needs it. The primary reason we give is actually for ourselves. Because it's a way of releasing ourselves from whatever other idols we happen to be in bondage to. Now, Today we need to look more specifically at, at why, or specifically uh, why the pursuit of money does not quench our thirst, but actually makes us more thirsty. Right? Just like alcohol will not quench your thirst, it'll actually, your physical thirst, it'll actually make you more physically thirsty. The pursuit of money will not quench your spiritual thirst, it will actually make you more thirsty. Why is that? Well, let's just look at some of the dangers of money that emerge in this passage. First of all, money is divisive. Money is divisive. This is kind of what emerges in the first part of this passage here, beginning in verse 13. So Jesus is out doing his ministry, crowds gathering around, listening to him speak. And someone in the crowd, verse 13, says, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, there, there's a whole story in that one phrase, right? I mean, already in that one phrase, you get a window into this individual's life and his relationship with his brother. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, the context here, it seems, more than likely, the, these two brothers... Their parents have died. Their father has died, right? That's when you get the inheritance is when they die. You don't get the inheritance before they die. Once they die, you get the inheritance, right? That's how it worked then. That's how it works now, which is also one of the reasons, for those of you who are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, why it's so remarkable and astounding that the younger brother asks the, his father for his share of the inheritance, he asks his father for his share of the inheritance while he's still alive, right? I mean, think about that. You're asking your parents for, for your share of the inheritance while they're still alive. It's sort of a way of saying, I wish you were dead, is what that would have communicated. So here, that's, that's not what's going on here, right? Presumably, the, the parents have passed away. The, the, the inheritance needs to be divided up. Presumably, this individual is the younger brother, and because the older brother is the one who would be responsible for giving the money to whatever other brothers there might be. It's also possible some scholars suggest that this younger brother is being exceptionally greedy in light of the, the customs of that day, that the older brother would have received two-thirds of the inheritance, and then that would have left a third for this guy. He seems to be, although scholars debate on whether or not it's actually saying this or not, that he's actually asking for half of the inheritance, which is more than he should have gotten in the first place. But even if he's not, the point here is that his older brother is not giving him his share of the inheritance. And what has this done? It has led to division 
in their relationship. Right? How many of us can relate to this? How many of us know individuals whose families there has been a wedge in the family because of what is done with the inheritance? Money causes division. Look, counselors that do marital counseling, what is one of the number one things that couples fight about? It's money. Money causes division. The pursuit of money causes division in relationships, right? There's nothing more divisive sometimes than a, a budget meeting with your spouse. Money can cause division in relationships in more subtle ways, too. Maybe you had this experience where you, you have a friend that you grew up with, maybe, and you used to do a lot of things with your friend. And then as you got older and got into your careers, one of you really excelled, started to make a lot of money, and your standard, one of you, your standard of living started to get much higher, right? And so now when the person with the higher income would go on vacation, they're like going to the Caribbean, they're going to Hawaii, they're going to all these places all the time, whereas the other one of you, like, you, you can't do that. And so you used, to, you used to go together, you used to go on vacation together, but now it doesn't work because they're up here and you're down here, right? You used to go to dinner together, right? Wednesdays, McDonald's for lunch. Now you can't, you can't go with them or they can't go with you to dinner anymore because of where they're going. There are these subtle ways, uh, my, I mean, I'll... My brother won't mind me sharing. My, so my brother became a doctor, and so he made more money than any Hanley has ever made before. And I remember, <laughs> remember one time, uh, a bunch of uh, friends from college, we were all going to a, a wedding, and we're all like, hey, well, let's just get a, we'll get a room at the Motel 6, and we'll just kind of pile in there. And, and my brother was like, uh, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know about that. And, but finally, he humbled himself, stooped with us commoners, but he admitted just how difficult that was. And he realized there was going to be this wedge. And what was he going to do? Like, no, guys, I'm going to get my own room at the Hilton. You know, I mean, it, 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 this natural division happens just because of the way money works. First of all, it's divisive. The pursuit of money is divisive. Secondly, it's deceptive, right? Money is deceptive. Uh, verse, again, verse 15, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Sort of this idea that you don't really know what that money is doing to you. You don't know how it's getting at you. And of course, in another passage where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and he compares the kingdom of God to a farmer who goes out and spreads seed out on different kinds of soil, and depending on the kind of soil, either the crop will grow or it won't. And one of the types of soil is rocky ground, and when the crop grows from that, the, the rocky ground, it chokes it, chokes the crop. And Jesus says that the, the rocky ground is, is, is like that, that person who they come to know the gospel. They, get the, the, they come to hear the word of God and it starts to grow, but it gets choked. And it says one of the main things that chokes it is the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth chokes the work of God in someone's life. And it's, what's interesting is the, the word that's used for the deceitfulness of wealth, the phrase that's used there, it's, it's a word that really means a pleasant illusion. It's an illusion. It's pleasant, but it's an illusion. It's 
deceptive. So how is money deceptive? And I look, I talk about this just about every year because we need to be reminded of this, so I'm going to say it again. We're going to drive it home. Here is one of the primary ways in which money is deceptive. Here's just really what it is. The more money you get, the more you raise your standard of living. Here's what it does. It just makes feeling normal more expensive. That's all it does. You get more money, increase your lifestyle. It just makes feeling normal more expensive. There was a a study was done in Japan where over the course of 30 years, the average income increased fivefold. This is like in the 80s, uh, up there, starting in the 80s, something like that. The average income increased five times, okay, in one generation. And they noticed absolutely no increase in happiness in Japan. None at all. Five times the increase, no increase in happiness at all. They said basically once you have your basic needs met, there is no increase in happiness when you increase the amount of finances that you have and the more you increase your standard of living. There's no increase. In fact, here's what happens. It just makes feeling normal more expensive. Now, here's where the deception comes, right? Here's what happens. Initially, when you get more money and raise your standard of living, initially it makes you happier, right? So here we go. Let's imagine this, this is how much money you make. This is your standard of living, and, okay, this is your standard of living, and this is your level of contentment, okay? Here it is. And you get a raise, you get a promotion, so now you can raise your standard of living. So initially, your happiness goes up, and you are happier, but it doesn't last long. And then your happiness goes back to where it was originally. But guess what doesn't go back down? Your house payment, car payment. That stays here. Now, you have to keep feeding that just to feel normal. I'll give you, I mean, kind of a silly example of how increasing your lifestyle, increasing what you have doesn't actually make you happier. The greatest, when I think about some of the greatest uh, experiences I've had watching movies, there is one experience, I'll never forget it, when I was younger, and I watched this movie, it was Die Hard. You guys know Die Hard? Oh, my gosh. It was awesome. Bruce Willis, you know, these terrorists take over his wife's, the building where his wife works. Terrorists take it over, and Bruce Willis is, you know, running around this building trying to stop the terrorists. And I was just, it was literally one of the most exciting cinematic experiences I have ever had in my life. And, and I don't know of anything that compares to it to this day. I watched Die Hard on a 36-inch black-and-white TV. It was black and white, okay? I watch movies now on my, I don't know how big it is. You know, it's, it's fairly big. Uh, HD color definition, and I still have not had a cinematic experience quite like what I had when I watched Die Hard on that black-and-white TV because it doesn't, it does, when you first get it, you're happier, but then you're not any happier than when you had your black-and-white TV. It does, initially, it does but then it doesn't. But as we just keep ramping it up, we keep having to pay more and more and more for us to have this feeling of normal. So in this sense, friends, it's really a lot like a drug. The pursuit of money is like a drug. You get that high, and at first you get that high and you love it, but then to the drug addict, now they have to get the high just to feel normal. Before you know it, 
We're all like that woman at the slot machine. Ding, 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 ding. I'm sure the first time that happened, she just jumped for joy. But now she got used to it. Ding, 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 ding. Friends, that's every single American. We have so much abundance, and we're not any happier. Because more money just makes feeling normal more expensive. That's the deceptiveness, the deceptiveness of wealth. So it's divisive, it's deceptive. Thirdly, money is uncertain, right? Uh, Verse 33 in this passage, um, yeah, sell your possessions and give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. In the ancient world, it was very easy for thieves to get into your house. Uh, Homes were made of clay that was easy to break into. The, the homes were generally fairly open, and so thieves would get in, take your, take your money. Um, when it's talking about moths, what that's probably talking about is how in the ancient world, one of the primary ways in which they stored wealth was not by simply putting money in a bank. For some people, they would store their wealth through owning valuable clothing. That was a way in which they would store wealth, so they'd have closets full of valuable uh, clothing. Um, but moths would get in and would destroy their clothing, so it was uncertain. Now, we don't deal with those same issues. Most of us don't store our wealth in clothing, although some of us might, actually. Uh, and most of us aren't worried about somebody breaking into our house and stealing our money. But, you see, the money can be taken from us in all kinds of ways in this modern world, right? Our money can be taken us from us through the basic fact that we don't have control over our economy. We don't have control over the local economy. You might not have a thief who steals your money, but you might have a competitor who steals your money. A friend of mine who owned a furniture store where I grew up, and fine, doing well, doing great. Walmart moves in. A year later, my friend's mom is working in the shoe department at Walmart for significantly less money. You cannot control this can't control the housing market. My, my wife and I, we still own a condominium in Maryland, which we're probably never able to get rid of, bought it right before the bubble. I mean, there are so many things that you cannot control. Money is uncertain. You never know you're going to come across a boss who holds you back. If you'd been in any other company, you would have advanced. You'd be in a different place. But for whatever reason, the boss that you got, the organization that you're in, you got stuck at this level. You can't control these things. Money is uncertain because it could be taken from you. And then you can be taken from it, right? This is the rather frank and morbid point that is made in verses 16 through 20. Verses 16 through 20, he told this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. 
Your money can be taken from you, and you can be taken from your money. Money is divisive. Money is deceptive. Money is uncertain. And because of this, because of these three, th- these three things, money cannot cure your worries. Money cannot cure your worries. This, this is why after he talks about money, he goes into this whole section about not worrying. See, we, we think, right, those of us who have anxiety and worries, we think if I just, if I won the lottery, right, or if I got that promotion, if I got that new job and I was able to meet these financial goals, then I wouldn't worry. What's interesting is that studies have shown, are you ready for this, rich people worry just as much, if not more, than poor people. They do. Wealthy people worry just as much as those who have very little money. Now, why is this? Why do wealthy people worry as much as poor people do? And here's why. You ready for this? Because worriers worry. Worriers worry, right? What do you get if you put a pig in a dress? You get a pig in a dress. What, have you, what do you get if you take a worrier and give him money? You have a worrier who has money. Money does not cure your worriers. You just become a wealthy worrier. Now, what's interesting is that if you are a worrier, you might make more money. That's actually true. I think that's true. If you worry about money, then you're going to you know, orchestrate your life such that you get more money. So if you're a worrier, you, you might get more money, but it's not going to make you not worry. Worriers worry. Wealthy people worry as much as, as those who don't have any money. An interesting study, was, this was done a number of years ago in Forbes, said that 48% of boomers who had at least a million dollars in retirement, okay, 48% of them who had at least a million dollars in retirement worried that they didn't have enough. The problem with being wealthy is that not only do you worry about, you end up worrying about a lot of the same things, there are additional worries to being wealthy. You worry about being sued. When you're poor, who's going to sue you? Wealthy people have to worry about being sued. They have to worry about protecting their assets. Worried people tend to worry the most about keeping up with the Joneses. Do you know who is the most worried about keeping up with the Joneses? The Joneses. They're the most worried about keeping up with the Joneses is the Joneses. You know, here's an interesting one. Wealthy people, you know, we tend to think that if you're poor, you're worried because, you know, it limits opportunities for your kids, limits opportunities for their career. If you can't get them into the right college, all of this. And there's an element of truth to that. But what's interesting is that wealthy people worry about limiting, if they're smart, if they realize it, they, they realize that they also are limiting their children's opportunities. And here's what it is. They are limiting their children to career paths that will enable them to make the same amount of money so that they can maintain their certain standard of living. I have a friend of mine, very wise, he was like, he's like, I've got to be careful not to give my children too high of a standard of living because then when they become adults, the only way they're going to be able to maintain that is if they pursue a career similar to mine. So now all of a sudden, their careers are just as limited. I mean, those those kids, they, they might be the happiest they would be is to do a particular job that doesn't make a lot of money, but because they've become so accustomed that normal has been put at a certain standard of living, now they have to pursue 
a limited number of careers in order to reach what is normal. Wealth does not quench your worries. Money cannot quench that deepest thirst. And, and so now just kind of summarizing it this way. Money cannot, de- cannot quench that deepest thirst. And what are we talking about here? We're talking about discontentment and worry. I would say that's one way of looking at it. That what we are trying to quench when we look to money is we're trying to quench our discontentment and we're trying to quench our worry. And money cannot quench this. Only God. Only God can quench your discontent and your worry. Only God can quench your discontent. In the book of Philippians, we read about the Apostle Paul. And it's kind of an interesting, it's the context in which he's writing this. He's writing this from prison. So he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And he's writing it from prison, right? And prison, I think most of us would assume that's about the last the, the last place you want to be if you're pursuing contentment. The last place you're going to find contentment, we'd all say the worst thing that could happen to me is I end up in prison. So think about that. That's where he is when he writes this and he says this to the church in Philippi. He says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was incredibly well-educated, which probably means that his family had a certain uh, amount of money, certainly more than your average uh, individual living in the Roman Empire. So he came from, he may not have been wealthy, but he would have, he would have been at least reasonably well-off. He says, I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in need. And then listen to this. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, think about that. Before I tell you what the secret is, because he tell you there's a secret to this contentment. Think about just what he's saying. I've learned the secret of being content, whether I have a lot or I have a little. Now, the, just that in of its sense is mind-blowing, right? Because most of us think that our contentment is completely related to what we have. What I have is going to determine my contentment. If I have what I want, I'm going to be content. If I don't have what I want, then I'm not going to be content. We think that somehow they're connected. What he's saying is, no, they're not even connected. Being in plenty and being in want actually has nothing to do with your level of contentment. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says this. What is the secret of contentment? I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Friends, God and God alone is the one who can quench our discontent. And God and God alone is the only one who can quench our worry. Jesus goes in and he spends the next section talking about worrying. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life, and here we might say contentment and peace, 
is more than food. The body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Then he goes on. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? What I love about you, you kind of got to get the flavor of this passage here. Have you ever met somebody who is not a worrier? They're sort of worry-free. People who don't worry, they just they have a lightness about them. They, they're just sort of, care, sort of carefree. And I feel like what, what Jesus is doing is talk, he's to birds and flowers. He's, he's just he's like, lighten up. Just, just lighten up. He's like, you know, think about little birds, that, birds that chirp, you know. They, they, you know. We don't even think about birds. He's like, you know, I, I provide for them. I, I, I care for them. And then he talks about flowers. He's like, you know, think about the splendor of, of the flowers that I make, the colors and the variety. And he's like, you know, I don't have to do that. He's like, it's almost like he's trying to paint this picture of saying, I have so much time on my hands, I even make flowers look good. He's like, I'm bored up here in heaven. I just got to, you know, I'll make these flowers Beautiful. He's like, why, why, would you work, why would you think that I'm not going to care for you? Why would you think that I don't have time to make sure that you're okay when I have time to make flowers look good? It's like that scene in, in the movie Elf where Buddy is up late at night and he's bored, so he makes Christmas decorations out of the furniture. You know, just like takes a couch and turns it into a little, little rocking, uh, horse rocking chair. <laughs> God's like that. He says, I have so much time on my hands. I have so much power that I just, you know, I make flowers beautiful. And are you not much more valuable than they? We might ask ourselves that question. <clears throat> Am I valuable? Does God see me? As valuable? Of course, when we read this in the Gospel of Luke, we have to read it in the context of where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. You see, this occurs here in chapter 12. But beginning in chapter 9, there is a a turn. Jesus turns. He's doing ministry up in the north of Israel, and he turns, and he begins to head towards Jerusalem. And it's very specific in making that clear, and it wants us to know that everything that he says needs to be seen in the context of the fact that he is on his way to Jerusalem. Why? To die for us. Jesus is saying, are you not much more valuable than that? Don't you realize you are so valuable that I'm going to give my life for you? On the cross... Jesus endured discontent and he took on our worst fears and our worst anxieties so that we don't have to. Friends, how many of you here today is money what you are looking to 
to quench your deepest thirst. You don't necessarily have to be pursuing more money. For some of us, it's not a matter of I need more money. It's that I can't possibly live without it. It's not that I need a bigger house. It's that I have to have the one I'm in. It's not that I I need a higher standard of living, but I can't let it drop below where I am right now. You see, it isn't really a matter of whether or not you have a lot of money. It's a question of whether or not that is what you are looking to, to quench your deepest thirst. And the heart of the gospel is that only God can quench your discontent and your wonder. Would the ushers please come forward for communion? Communion is an opportunity for us to drink from the only well that can truly satisfy. Communion is an opportunity for us to be reminded of the fact that we have a God who gave his life for us. We have a God who gave himself for us, that he endured discontent so that we wouldn't have to, that he took on our worst fears and our worst anxieties so that we wouldn't have to. This is what the cross points us to, and this is what communion reminds us of. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning, and God, we repent, meaning we turn from our idols. We turn from those things which we believe will make us happy. God, you are the only one. You are the only one that can cure our worries. God, I pray that, I pray that you would give us the, the courage, Lord, to step out in faith and to pursue you rather than money. God, we are a culture that no doubt is in many ways enslaved to money. And we need you, Lord, right now in this place through the power of the cross to break those chains that we might finally experience true freedom. That we might come to see that the very thing that we're looking to to bring contentment, the very thing that we're looking to to ease our worries is actually the cause of it. God, may we look to you and you alone. Pray this in Jesus' name.